Crest in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And good afternoon to you all. Happy Tuesday and welcome to another edition of Cresta in the Afternoon. Al's got a little bit of a cold today, but uh, Lord willing, he'll be back tomorrow. And we're looking back on some uh, different conversations that we wanted to share with you again. Uh, For the first segment, kicking things off, no pun intended, talking to a former soccer star. This is Father Chase Hilgenbrink. And uh, when he was a young man, he thought he had it all figured out. He was a rising soccer star playing the game he loved in front of packed stadiums. But he stepped away. And if you tell that to the average sports fan or even just to the average person, they're going to say that's nuts. Why would you give up all this success and all these uh, all this glory to go be a priest? Well, he'll tell us why. Father is a priest in the Diocese of Peoria, Illinois. And back when we talked to him a few years ago, he was actually working in a Newman Center there. He's no longer with the Newman Center. He's now working for the diocese. But you'll also hear some conversation in this interview about the work he's doing with college students. And as I said, a former soccer defender who played professionally in Chile, as well as here in the U.S. for the New England Revolution. And you can find his story in Trent Petey's book, Apostolic Athletes, which is just a delightful collection of athletes sharing their journeys to Christ. We'll, of course, have that available in the online store. Uh, Later in this hour, we get to one of those big topics, suffering, and more specifically, finding hope and healing in suffering. Of course, suffering is something that affects all of us, and for many, it's a stumbling block to faith in God and is the catalyst to an unhappy life. But it does not have to be this way. We'll talk with uh, Bob Shooks once again about how suffering can actually lead to greater union with Christ. Bob is the best-selling author of many books, including Real Suffering, Finding Hope and Healing in the Trials of Life, as well as Be Healed, A Guide to Encountering the Powerful Love of Jesus in Your Life, and Be Transformed, The Healing Power of the Sacraments. Uh, He's also the founder of the John Paul II Healing Center in Tallahassee, and has volunteered in parish ministry for more than 30 years. You can learn more about his work at JP2 Healing Center. Org. Uh, in the next hour, we'll be joined by Dr. Leonard DiLorenzo, discussing the topic, A God Who Questions, and also explore a scientist's view of miracles. That's all coming up over the next two hours of Cresta in the afternoon after this news break. Thanks, Brian. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Tuesday, October 10th. It's the Feast of St. Daniel Camboni. Today's news is brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes at CharityMobile.com. President Biden says the attack on Israel is an act of pure evil. More than 1,000 civilians slaughtered, not just killed, slaughtered in Israel. Among them, at least 14 American citizens killed. The president said the U.S. stands with Israel and has the right to defend itself. Israel plans to start distributing assault rifles to volunteer teams in border communities and mixed Jewish-Arab towns. The nation's national security minister outlined the plan in a social media post. At least 10,000 rifles will be handed out to be followed by helmets and flak jackets. The FBI is leading an effort to locate Americans impacted by the Hamas attacks. 
The agency posting on social media that reports of dead, injured, and missing Americans are being treated with the utmost urgency. Americans are less enthused now about corporations involving themselves in advocacy for social issues than last year. A new report from the Public Affairs Council shows 57% surveyed said they support companies trying to engage politically. That's down from 66% in 2022. There's a line drawn between political parties, with Democrats more likely than Republicans to say corporations should be involved in issues involving discrimination on the basis of race or gender. And social media platforms will be held accountable for failing to curb the spread of child sexual abuse materials. Under the new law, Instagram, TikTok, and other social media platforms would be banned from knowingly facilitating, aiding, or abetting commercial sexual exploitation. The law goes into effect in January of 2025. From your Ave Maria news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Father uh, Chase Hilgenbrink is uh, one of the figures uh, in the book Apostolic Athletes that we've been talking about. This is a collection that uh, Trent Beatty put together of 11 priests and bishops who talk about how sports help them follow Christ's call uh, to priesthood. Uh, Chase was a, a well-respected rising soccer star, playing the game that he loved in front of packed stadiums. Uh, played professionally in Chile and in the United States, uh, and then ended up believing that Jesus was calling him to ordain priesthood. And uh, his story is told in Apostolic Athletes. Eleven priests and bishops reveal how sports help them follow Christ's call. Father, good to have you back. It's been many years. That's right, Al. Thanks so much for having me back. It's uh, it's been a great journey since I talked to you last, just entering the seminary. Yeah. Now I'm I'm four years ordained a priest, and uh, <laughs> thanks be to God, I couldn't. I've never been happier. I can't believe it's been that long. Wow. Yeah. So you're in Peoria now. I'm in the Diocese of Peoria. I'm, yeah. I'm currently uh, the assistant chaplain at the Newman Center at the University of Illinois in Champaign, Illinois. Oh yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a good that good strong group there, right? It is. It's 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 um, the premier Newman Center in, in the country. We have a dorm here of, of 600 students who live uh, above the chapel. Uh, it's an amazing Catholic experience. You know, a lot of people um, think that this is a huge secular school, which it is, over 40,000 students. But we're we're like a, a Catholic school in the midst of a, of a secular campus, and it's a great community. You know, I, I think a lot of college students really need good spiritual friendships and, and a Catholic community to live in, so so they don't lose their faith in college. You know. Um, yeah. Matthew Kelly talks about, you know, 70% of, of, of Catholics under the age of 23 will lose their faith by the time that they leave college. Right. And, uh, and so that's, that's what we see as our mission. We're, we're on mission for, for these souls that, that they uh, sustain their faith, and not only sustain it, but, but go on offense of living it and, and actively seeking God's will for their life. Why is it that the Newman Center there has been so incredibly effective. I mean, I, I mean, I, I've seen Newman centers at universities which uh, they hardly exist. Why is sure. it working so well there? That's in 600. 
Uh, yeah, sure. Wow. You know, it, it is a it is a unique model, and I think that that's the that's the reality of it today. I think with finances, it's so hard to to build things right. uh, with with the church's money and and uh, and to be able to to sustain a dorm um, that that is a multi million dollar facility and and project. But uh, the vision, I would say, the secret is is the vision that was set forth by by a priest in the 1920s, who right before the Great Depression uh, had this place built. And uh, so he had this vision, which we're now currently living out today, which it wasn't being lived out for, for many, many decades because okay. there was no more money after the Depression to be able to, to finish the project. But nevertheless, uh, we got in early, and uh, we're at a, a premier location on campus, and, uh, and we're living out a faithful, a faithful vision. And, and, and in doing that, uh, we have space to, to, to grow. And, and, and now that you have a dorm, that, that certainly is the moneymaker for the chapel and, and for the mission of of, of Jesus to, to, to do his thing in the hearts of, of, of the students that are here. So it's, it's paid dividends. Now, you grew up in Illinois, didn't you? I did. I'm from Bloomington, Illinois, which is just uh, an hour from here. It's, it's the headquarters of, of State Farm in the country. It's a uh, place where Illinois State University is, and, and, uh, and so it's, it's uh, right in the heart of Illinois. How'd you end up playing soccer in Chile? You know, I had the opportunity to um, to play college soccer, which was which is you know kind of my own dream to be able to help my parents pay for college, but also mm-hmm. play Division One soccer. My brother and I both had that opportunity. I I went to Clemson University out on the out on the East Coast in South Carolina, and it was there that um, you know playing in in the ACC, the Atlantic Coast Conference, where I was seen by by several different people, and and one of those those people was a, a scout from from Chile, <laughs> and he just thought I had had the skills, the ability, and the style of play that would fit well in, in, in his home country, and, and from there he, uh, he opened up some doors and, and uh, opened up the door to a tryout, and, and the Lord uh, allowed me to, to stay there for a while to, to discern my vocation. I'm, I'm convinced that my time in Chile was, was specifically for uh, the encounter with the Lord that I had there and the ability to, uh, to discern what he was calling me to do in my life. Yes, yeah, see, I love, I love stories because I truly believe that the God who counts the hairs on our head really does tell a story through our life and through our choices. Tell, tell us why, what happened in Chile that uh, made you consider priesthood seriously. I mean, you had been, I, I was reading here, you'd been on retreat when you were uh, at Clemson, and uh, you were beginning to practice your faith very seriously, or embrace it, make it your own. Sure. What happened in Chile? You know that was it was kind of the the perfect storm. Um, you know, I was I would say I was a, a kind of what we consider just a normal Catholic, which was just you know I I went to mass on Sundays mm-hmm. and I checked the box and I did what I was supposed to do. I was a good German as well, you know, just doing <laughs> what I was supposed to do. And and uh, but you know in that my my faith I never really felt it. I, I was I was uh, the way I describe it as I was I was faithful, but I wasn't on fire. And um, and so in that instance, uh, um, I, I just wanted to remain faithful. I didn't know that there was something more. Yeah. I, I didn't know there was something else to, to understand and to grasp. And it was only when I moved to South America, and, and for the first time, I moved away from friends and family. And, and, and while I was there, I entered into uh, this <laughs> this great secret, which is no secret in our church. It's called silence. Right? <laughs> I, went, I, went, <laughs> I went to this country where I didn't know anybody. I, I couldn't speak the language, and I worked for two hours a day at practice, and then and then I went home. And uh, in that time, I, I recognized that the only thing I knew how to do, the only person I could communicate with, was 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 the Lord. Wow. And so I started to pray. Uh, I, I began this what what my Protestant friends told me a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I thought it was a Protestant thing. It turned. <laughs> out that it's just a Christian thing, you know. Right. Um, right. 
And so I started to pray, and, and that's where the Lord encountered me. You know, I, I just preached this weekend to our students. You know, so often we, we're, we're grasping for meaning in our life. We're grasping for, for meaning and, mm-hmm. and, and to make our way in the world. Really, our life as Christians is all about allowing ourselves to be encountered, allowing ourselves to be found. And uh, through that silence, I, I, I didn't know what I was doing, but, but the Lord did. And in that silence, uh, I, I allowed myself to be found, and, and He came crashing into my life in a, in a brand new way and, and lit that fire that I was missing. Yeah. You, you were playing hockey, what, a half a dozen years? I'm not hockey, soccer, soccer, I'm sorry, yeah. yeah. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, you know, um, professionally, I I played four years in Chile and then came back and played just one season here in the United States. Okay. Uh, You don't get to play at that level of uh, sports unless you've got a a pretty strong competitive impulse uh, and you want excellence because you have to drive yourself. So do you miss... Uh, that kind of physical encounter and that kind of structure, discipline, and knowing at the end of a game you either won or you lost. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's one of the that's one of the greatest questions that that I that I get a lot, especially from students and wondering. I, you know, I can see their wheels. T- churning in their heads when they're asking this question. They're basically weighing whether it's worth it or not. Yeah. You know, I love yeah. to get that question from, from the youth. And, and, and when they're asking it, you know, my, my, my answer is always, if you think that, that I'm going to say that I miss soccer in a way that I wish I, w- I wouldn't have made this decision or I wish I could go back, um, the answer is absolutely not. That is not the way that I miss soccer. But if you're asking, do I miss the game? Do I miss the competition? Do I miss everything that you just described? The answer is absolutely yes. I, I, <laughs> I spent my life doing this. I love competition. I yeah. love, I love sports. I, I still play them. I still watch sports. Uh, you know, um, yeah, that that definitive. You know, when the whistle blows after 90 minutes, there you went. You won, lost, or tied. You know, there's there's no there's no doubt about it. Um, I do miss that. I, I miss playing in front of a stadium, you know, full of people. I miss the camaraderie of of the locker room. Um, I miss all of those things. But but you know what? I I realize that uh, I'm able to, to to receive all of those things um, through the priest. I have a great fraternity through this priesthood. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have I have uh, I, I still play the game of soccer. I'm still competitive. Um, I play intramurals right here on campus with our with our students um, in the in the intramural league. Um, I'm actually going to um, going out of the country just this next week to to do a camp over in England for for a priest who who wants to jumpstart his his youth ministry program. You Beautiful. know, and, and uh, what an opportunity! I, I run camps now uh, called Catholic soccer camps, and there's no bones about it. We're we're Catholic through and through. What we teach on the field, we have mass, we have adoration. Where there's one coming yeah. up in in the Joliet diocese here um, this summer. So anyway, um, I'm using I'm using the sport in ways that I never thought possible, and the love is still there, and uh, the Lord has just asked me to, to use it in a different way. Well, that's great. How, how, now, when did you start these uh, these camps, these soccer camps? Well, you know, it's something that I've done in in my summer assignments as a seminarian. Each one of the, the, the pastors that I've, that I've had in my summer assignments have, have asked me, hey, can you do something with our youth over the summer and do something with soccer? So it was born, you know, as a seminarian, and I was, I was just, uh, I would start parish soccer camps, you know, just for something for the kids to do and offering. And I started to develop kind of uh, my own spirituality of that and what yeah. that looks like. And uh, and now it's developed more and more until I got a call from a seminarian named Kyle 
Kyle Langan, and he's up in uh, the Archdiocese of Chicago. Or no, he's in, he's in Joliet. I'm sorry. Okay. And uh, and so he he called and said, "Hey, I had this idea of of doing." He played soccer at, at Steubenville. Mm-hmm. So we've had this idea of combining sports and faith and doing a Catholic soccer camp. Would you be interested? I said, "Absolutely." You know, it's something that I've been doing. We need to take it to a larger scale. And so we're doing it for the entire diocese up there in Joliet. And um, and it's something that I'm now bringing back here to Peoria, but. Um, but it's one of those things where um, we combine sports and faith, and and uh, we 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 teach faith through soccer. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Sure. Um, we and it's one of those things where you know we we often compartmentalize our faith in our life. You know, I'm going to soccer practice now. That has nothing to do with, with <laughs> right. Jesus or my faith. You right. know, I'm going to work now. That has nothing to do with Jesus or faith. I'm going to school now. I don't pray there. I'm not allowed to. I'm not. Uh, no, um, I want to live it a completely different way. That that, that the divine would, would transcend every aspect of my life, and and we would teach our youth uh, the exact same thing that, that as they're playing their sport, um, that the Lord is 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 alive right there with them at their side and within them, and and He's their strength. You know. Do you sense Do you sense that uh, Catholics uh, in America are be growing more and more aware of the full orbed nature of faith? I mean, there's no part of the universe that God doesn't look down and say, hey, that's mine. Um, every area of life can be infused with the gospel spirit, with the exception of sin. But everything can be related back to who God is. Do you think that, uh, again, very robust notion of faith is becoming more and more common among Catholic laity? You know, yeah, I think I think Catholics, especially, you know, we're we're getting to the point in our in our church where, you know, every every Catholic writer is 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 considering, you know, what our church looks like in the future, and it seems like that's kind of the buzz that's going around town. You know, you mm-hmm. got the you got the Benedict Option, which you know I think is is a very well written book mm-hmm. and brings yep. up some great things. He talks about the church getting smaller, which is what Benedict the Sixteenth, yeah. you know, talked about, and others are talking about evangelization. We can't get smaller. We got to start growing, or we're dying. You yeah, know? yeah. There's different there's different areas, but but certainly the awareness is there, and um, and we'll do our best. Well, Father, thank you so much. Uh, wonderful talking with you again. And uh, you're sounding great. And it's very, very encouraging to hear what you're doing. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me out. Father Chase Hilgenbrink, again, priest and diocese of Peoria, Illinois, serving in the St. John Newman Center there. I'm Al Cresta. What does the Catholic Catechism teach about divorce? The Church does not permit divorce in a valid marriage because she is firmly adhering to the rules set down by her founder. Jesus Christ made it very clear that a sacramental valid marriage was not to be dissolved. Whoever divorces his wife, he declared, and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Therefore, the Church maintains a second marriage cannot be recognized as valid if the first marriage is valid. The Catechism tells us if the divorced are remarried civilly, they find themselves in a situation that objectively contravenes God's law. In such a situation, they may not receive Eucharistic communion as long as this situation persists. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. 60 Seconds with Father Mitch Pacwa. The state has responsibility to orient things, but they can't take over the rights of the family, like in China, to have one child and that's it. It's a disaster over there. How many tens of millions of abortions have gone on? And one of the things that 
as a result of that is because of the preference to have boy children rather than girls, you have for every thousand boys or 850 girls. This is a great imbalance. Same thing is going on in northern India. So this is where they, the government cannot take away the primary and inalienable responsibility of married couples and families. And they cannot employ methods which fail to respect the person and fundamental human rights. Beginning with the right to life, the government cannot force you to kill innocent human beings and still be a humanistic government. It's an evil government. The people you know and trust are on EWTN. He is only one of four popes honored as the great. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. St. Leo I was pope at a time when Roman civilization was being overrun by barbarian armies. He stood as a light in the darkness and even saved the city of Rome from destruction by Attila and the Huns. Leo died in 461. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. We need your help. Hello, I'm Marianne Koharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. Our ads feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy help. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. To donate, please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. The suffering is something that affects everyone. And for many, it can be a stumbling block to faith in God and a catalyst to a very unhappy life. It doesn't have to be this way. Uh, again, suffering enters everybody's life, and not everybody ultimately is miserable. My guest, Bob Shooks, is the best-selling author of several books, including Real Suffering, Finding Hope and Healing in the Trials of Life. We've talked with uh, Bob before about his book, Be Healed, a guide to encountering the powerful love of Jesus in your life and be transformed, the healing power of the sacraments. He's the founder of the John Paul II Healing Healing Center in Tallahassee, Florida, and has volunteered in parish ministry for more than 30 years. And Bob, it's good to have you back with me. Thank you. Thanks, Al. Good to be with you, too. Uh, suffering, you had a heap of it poured upon you all at once. Why don't you tell us a little bit of that story? Uh, yeah, it, as 
they approached me to to work on this book and and video series. I had no idea what was coming, but um, within a very short period of time, my wife came down with a mysterious illness. Uh, it was a brain disease. It's like one in a million people, and they had no cause and no diagnosis. And, uh, at the same time, my father uh, began to deteriorate. He had some uh, Alzheimer's, but he was in good health. And just that it all happened at the same time, and uh, they died two weeks apart. And mm. in between that was Hurricane Irma. So wow. it was quite, quite a week, or wow. a couple, couple of weeks. You know, the, the, um, as, you, as you walk through something like that, uh, everything is shaky uh, around you. Um, you, you're in, emotionally engaged, of course, with the suffering of your wife, the loss of your father. You've got the physical um, spinning of the hurricane. Yeah. Uh, what did you did you retain your spiritual sanity by any particular discipline? How did you handle that? Well, I, all, all the same disciplines. In fact, I think they increased during that period of time yeah. where you yeah. your prayer life and. This was able to share the daily Eucharist with my wife during that time and those kind of things. But I, I, it was really a, a quote from uh, one of my favorite authors, Jacques Philippe, who yeah. mm-hmm. was talking about uh, it's not so much the suffering but the fear of suffering that creates the problems in our life. And and it was really, as those things happen, our natural response is fear uh, and it was it was really that uh, that phrase that he had given us that kept me focused on continuing to turn every incident back into trust. And as a result of that, it, it as hard as it was, it was really a beautiful time of of a deepening. And you hear so many people talk about that, just a deepening encounter, rather than losing the sense of bearing. They get stronger during a time like that. Mm. You have a phrase in in the book that suffering that is not transformed is transmitted is transmitted in a in a situation as you're describing now with your wife your loss of your father the hurricane the chaos of life. Um, are you aware of potential transformation when you're in the midst of it? Is that something you see afterwards? Well, I think a little of both. Uh, you know, just take fear for example. Okay. Mm-hmm. When you get into those situations, and there's a couple of situations, like when my my wife lost her ability to walk or to talk or getting on the phone with my dad and him having a hard time keeping comfort. You know, there's there's a natural tendency to fear. Right. Right. And in fear, you pull back uh, or you react, and that just kind of increases everybody's fear and 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 cuts down on the on the the love that's present and. So even in those moments, it's that consciousness of okay, I'm not going to respond out of my fear here. I'm going to I'm going to turn to God, turn it over to Him, and then you can stay in a place of of peace and a place of love in the middle of that. So I think in in the immediate sense, there's that consciousness, but I think in the bigger picture, you begin to realize, wow, this could go one of two directions. This could go really in a bad way create a lot of damage, mm-hmm. uh, or it could go in a good way. And I'll just give you an example of the year anniversary of my wife's death. Um, and so my children and grandchildren and I all gathered in the room together, 
and just began to talk about what we missed and what we loved about uh, their grandmother, their mother, mother-in-law, and and my me as a wife, my wife. And uh, you know, there's something in just letting out the pain and talking about it that transforms it rather than transmits it. And yes, you know, for each of us the extent to which we don't deal with it, we do transmit it, even if it's just a distance from other people. Yes. What is meant by joining your sufferings with Christ? Uh, it's a phrase which we often use, and I know when I was being hospitalized after an amputation, I found myself trying to join my sufferings to Jesus. Um, didn't do it very well, but I... <laughs> but, but I, I think I still believe I still believe in the effort. I, a lot of times I don't do prayer very well either, but I still pray. Yeah, um, yeah I don't know if any of us do it well. But, uh, just the, the focus on it, I think, is part of that transformation. And you know, there's several different pieces of that, and one of them is is the recognition of how much he's first joined his suffering with ours, and so that. You know, the rest of the world runs from suffering, right? I mean, that's our natural response. We want to insulate ourselves from it. We want to overcome it. You know, it's and that's a natural desire. But Jesus is the only one who comes into our suffering. I mean, you think about it. He left heaven where there's no suffering to come in and then to share in the suffering. And so he's completely identified with our suffering. So I think the first part is receiving his presence in our suffering, his compassion, his nearness in our suffering. Uh, but then the second, as you're describing, is our attempt then to rather than uh, wallow in it or uh, or withdraw from it, to just be conscious of it and to offer it to him. Uh, and in that also to offer it for others as a prayer, you know, so, so our suffering becomes intercession in some ways. Mm. Um, with the people that you've worked with over the years, uh, you've done a lot with marriage, uh, do, do, do people conclude, based on their own experience, that they've, that they've become deeper, better, uh, more holy through suffering, or is that simply... Uh, a way of uh, helping us explain to ourselves why life isn't meaningless? Well, I think a little of both. Mm -hmm. uh, I, th I think the way we understand something from the very beginning helps. Uh, but I think that there's something very real that happens. Yeah. Uh, I, I saw both with my dad and with Margie and then my brother Dave 20 years ago when they went through, when they went through their suffering there was an extra grace. I don't know how to describe it, but mm -hmm. there was a there was a different tenderness to their heart, a different yes. expression on their face, uh, and that isn't always without grimace and pain and everything else. But and I think in marriage the same way. I think when when couples enter into it together, there's such a beauty there. I I look at those three or four months as some of the most beautiful in our marriage, even though they were some of the hardest. And I think couples in general that I've counseled over the years and families, I think they, they find that when they when they bring that together uh, in, in, in prayer and in openness, there's something beautiful that happens in it that's more than just an, an explanation to myself. Yeah, yeah. 
Very good. You distinguish three different types of suffering in the book, and it's actually structured this way. Physical suffering, emotional suffering, and spiritual suffering. And uh, it may, People may think they know exactly what you mean by that, but let's go ahead and do a little bit of definition anyways. When we talk about physical suffering, you're referring to? Uh, just all the ways in which we suffer physically, primarily the pain, pain sickness, yeah. illness, uh, injury, disease, things that things that affect us physically that have pain associated with physical pain associated with it. Mm-hmm. And emotional suffering is? Uh, emotional suffering is kind of the heart of emotional suffering is loss, but not just big loss like death, but even little losses like disappointments, job losses, a loss of a good grade on a test, uh, loss of a friendship, moving away, kids going off to college. Mm-hmm. That All of that's part of emotional loss. Uh, which is which is a broken attachment. You know, it's, it's some attachment that we have a loss in that attachment. And then spiritual suffering. Uh, again, there's lots of different elements of this, but uh, primarily guilt and shame that we carry from from sin, and sometimes not even from our own sin, from the sins of others. But mm-hmm. we carry on a guilt and a shame, and that creates a deep uh, spiritual suffering. Yeah. You have a you have a uh, a prototype for each of these types of suffering. Uh, uh, Jesus for physical suffering, Mary for emotional suffering, suffering Peter for spiritual suffering, and why don't you just go ahead and and tell us the appropriateness of each of those models? Yeah, and obviously Jesus could be, and probably all three of them could be the model for each of them. Sure, but, sure. But in a particular way, Jesus' death on the cross. Uh, you know, if it's possible, I can't imagine it, that anybody would suffer any more intensely than Jesus suffered in his passion and his death, and mm-hmm. particularly no, nobody more conscious and aware and willing to suffer in a redemptive way. And so when we look at his suffering, you think about it from the top of his head, where the crown of thorns are, to the bottom of his feet, where the nails are driven through, to every part of his body, just the total agony. And and yet in the middle of it, he's able to keep his focus on the Father. He's able to love the people around him, and he's able to offer that suffering as as a intercession for us. And in some way or another, even though none of us are capable in the full way that he does, that as we deal with our physical pain in that way, and then mostly with the hope that this isn't going to be forever, that there's going to be an end to this, and there's going to be resurrection there. So that, that's, that's kind of Jesus. a picture of... Yeah, no, that makes sense. And so, they, again, the enormity of his physical suffering and yet his capacity uh, to uh, retain relationship. Uh, yeah, so. all the way around. Yeah, and yeah. Faith, hope, and love, is, it was still in him. And we all say, well, that's Jesus, I can't do that, but... The promise is we can if we ask him. It's right. like, okay, I can't do that, but the Holy Spirit can give me that grace to suffer with him in that way. Bob, hold it there, would you please? We're going to take a break and come back and uh, continue conversation with Dr. Bob Shooks. He is the author most recently of Real Suffering, Finding Hope and Healing in the Trials of Life. I'm Al Cresta. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, 
a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Never miss an episode of Cresta in the Afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. I turned from a recreational drug user to a drug addict. That took me to my knees. I lost a family, almost two families. I lost friends. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. I love it. My heart's there. I took communion after 18 years, and the rest of the Mass I sat and cried. God restored my life. God restored my family. God restored my love. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for any reason, visit catholicscomehome.org today. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. Parents in a town just 45 minutes outside of Dublin have banned together to enforce a smartphone ban for their children in elementary school. It was just the striking results of the rising anxiety, depression, and everything we noticed of having a mobile phone, especially among young children. And according to this article, the results have been extremely positive in terms of less anxiety among the children, closer bonds being formed with the families, more time spent together outside with kids playing and actually reading. I mean, this is such common sense. All too often, I think it's it's hard for parents and grandparents to resist, right? Well, mom and dad, everybody has one. It's really incredible, the simple effort of parents coming together and saying, you know what, we need to do something. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. This program is brought to you in part by MyLifeAngels.com. My Life Angels provides peace of mind by notifying you the moment a loved one enters an emergency room. Right on your smartphone, you'll have instant access to everything needed, including all legal documents, to ensure you are empowered to protect their life-affirming wishes. My Life Angels also alerts hospital ER staff with critical medical information and emergency contacts. More information at MyLifeAngels.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Bob Schuchs. 
author of Real Suffering, Finding Hope and Healing in the Trials of Life. So we're taking a look at physical suffering, emotional suffering, spiritual suffering. As we close the last segment, we're talking about uh, Jesus as the model uh, of one who uh, suffers physically, and yet in the midst of the most uh, extraordinary pain, he's able to retain his uh, proper relationships uh, with uh, his mother, with his father, with uh, his, his disciples who remain, uh, in this case, John, John chapter 19. Um, let's go to Mary. She's point, you, you point Mary out as the kind of model for handling emotional suffering, and that has to do primarily with the, any sense of loss, all the various types of loss that contribute to emotional suffering. Um, again, explain to me why she is the appropriate model here. Yeah, and, and in church history, in fact, we just celebrated the Feast of Our Lady of Sorrows. Of Sorrows, that's right, this is yeah, weekend, yeah. In fact, uh, right in the middle of all of this, uh, in my family, she's right in the middle of all of that, uh, in terms of her feast day and their death days. Yeah. Uh, but Our Lady of Sorrows uh, is also called Our Lady of Compassion. Uh, because of the depth of her emotional suffering and her capacity to, uh, as a mother and as a sister, uh, and to to enter in and and have compassion for us and our loss and give us an example of how to deal with that loss. And you know, we talk about the seven sorrows of Mary, starting with the Simeon of prophecy: your own heart will be pierced with a sword, mm-hmm. and then her standing at the cross and everything in between. But you know, she's experienced so many different kinds of loss. If you think about it, she lost everybody that was close to her. Her parents at some point, Joseph, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jesus. Uh, and the way that she does that, again, is in communion with Jesus. I mean, we, we, we see her at the foot of the cross. And what had to be, not only to, to be experiencing the death of her son, but experiencing the excruciating torture and having to watch that helplessness. You know, there's, there's, there's such an emotional suffering in that helplessness in the face of pain, in the face of loss. And, and yet we just see her uh, in the strength of the Holy Spirit, in the strength of the gaze of her son, uh, walking into it and grieving it and giving us a model for grief and you know in the in Jewish culture uh, there was also something called lament you know that yes. that that was more than just our polite way of grieving it was just kind of a, a loud and yeah we have psalms of lament there are plenty of psalms yeah, of lament, lament. Yeah. yeah yeah and so you know we don't have that visual picture of Mary at the cross lamenting but whether it was outward or inward, there had to be such a tremendous lament inside of her yeah, yeah. over what's going on. And yet, again, the, the way that she keeps loving Jesus in the middle of that, loving John, who's right next to her, Mary Magdalene, uh, the disciples, the way that she uh, walks into the hope of the end of that. Uh, and I quote Psalm 30 there, you know, that... Uh, your mourning will be turned into rejoicing. You know, there's a hope in it uh, that she has that allows her, just like Jesus, allows her to walk through it to the other side. Yeah. yeah. 
You uh, also, in your whole discussion of emotional loss and emotional suffering, you talk about uh, attachment, the different types of attachment. And is the, the stronger and more secure the attachment, does that actually create, a, when, that is, when that is shaken, does that create a greater sense of trauma? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it, it gives you a greater sense of security. So in that sense, it lessens the trauma. But mm-hmm. at the same time, the more the attachment, the more depth the pain of the loss. Right, right. Uh, and so it's, it's, so it's an irony. You know, somebody with uh, a less secure attachment may actually exhibit more trauma in their loss. Uh, but, you know, in some sense, it's not as big a loss because the attachment hasn't been as secure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are the different types of attachment that you refer to? Well, classically, there's there's secure, healthy attachment. None of us are perfectly healthily attached, but, you know, relatively so. And then there's uh, called different things, but uh, yeah, I like to call it defensive detachment, mm-hmm. uh, which is a way in which through hurt early on or or throughout our life, we detach our hearts because it's too painful and we kind of wall them off in self-protection. Uh, and then there's an anxious attachment, uh, which is uh, there's there's a level of attachment still, but there's not really any security there. Mm-hmm. And in that lack of security, we're kind of uh, push and pull, you know, in and out, uh, trusting and not trusting, and uh, kind of have a tendency to grasp and hold on to relationships and, and almost suffocate relationships because of our insecurity. Yeah. Um, and the uh, anxious attachments, um, do those are those primarily experience... Do, are these attachments something we that persist through our, our life? Can they be reformed, transformed? Well, both. Uh, yeah, our attachments early on, usually in the first couple of years of life, become a pattern throughout our life and, until they're healed. And so the, all the brain research shows that those attachment patterns stay, and, and all the uh, psychological uh, studies say that that stays until there's some kind of significant healing. And that significant healing can be supernatural, uh, like I talk about in the book, uh, at times, or it can be it can be natural in the sense of uh, having a relationship that's very secure that walks through that with us, uh, like in a counseling situation or a healthy family situation, where it walks through the, the the emotional suffering to get to the other side of it. This idea of attachment has to have some real bearing on how we perceive God's relationship with us. Yeah, um, very much. How how do these, depending on what attachments are primary in our lives, how do they affect our relationship or our perception of who God is? Yeah, I think we we typically project onto God what our what our attachments been. So if we have a secure attachment, we can experience God as a loving God and us feel safe and and there's a joyfulness in our relationship with God and and an expectation that when we go to God, he's going to answer at some level, as opposed to uh, a detachment from, you know, a a detachment from others. There's also a detachment from God. So we may have a concept of a good God, but not really an experience in our hearts because our hearts are 
are protected and closed off from that. Versus with an anxious attachment, we have more of a frightened, fearful relationship with God. You know, that God's going to be punished, and we focus on all the scriptures about uh, what God might do to me rather than recognizing and experiencing God as a God of love and a God of protection and safety. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let me just jump up to the, the idea of spiritual uh, suffering as well, for which Peter is the model, and this focuses upon the, the problem of guilt and shame. Uh, talk to us a little bit about Peter's biography here and why he deserves to be the model. Yeah, I, as I say in the book, you know, Peter's the most like us because he's a sinner. You know, Mary, by grace, and Jesus, by nature, have no sin. So we can look at them and say, oh, you know, of course they can go through their suffering in this way, but Peter responds to his suffering like we do. And uh, you see from the very beginning when Jesus meets Peter, Peter says to him after the miracle of the fish are caught, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. Yeah. Immediately mm-hmm. he's in touch with his guilt and his shame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and rather than come clean with Jesus, he wants Jesus to go away. And that's typically what we want to do uh, until we face it. We typically create this distance. You know, We don't want to get too close to Jesus because we know that he's going to see through us, see in us and see through us. And <laughs> we don't yet trust that he's going to see us with mercy because we expect that he's going to condemn us like we've condemned ourselves in our own guilt and shame. And so you watch Peter's journey uh, through the scriptures, and you know it's really a beautiful picture of all of our spiritual journey. And at the point of his denial, of Peter's denial of Jesus, uh, to me one of the most gripping scenes in scripture is when Jesus looks up, and you know it doesn't say what the look was like, uh, and I think some of us can interpret it as, oh, I told you so, Peter, you know, you were going to do this. Right. But I don't I don't believe that's the look that Jesus gave Peter. I believe the look that Jesus gave Peter was one of love and compassion and mercy. And I believe that's what undid Peter. Mm-hmm. Like, he faced his shame in the face of perfect mercy, and he couldn't run from it anymore. And it says he went out and wept bitterly. And I think for many of us, as we've really faced our sin and our shame, uh, our guilt, uh, there's a place of of deep repentance in that. Uh, And then as Jesus comes back up in the room uh, after the resurrection and uh, says shalom, we don't, you know, we we look at that word as peace, but it's the peace of healing, it's the peace of forgiveness. And so... I imagine in that Peter begins to experience well, Jesus isn't mad at me, Jesus isn't hating me, mm-hmm. Jesus is receiving me, he's forgiving me. But Peter needed more than that. You know, Jesus singled him out of all the disciples and redid that fishing miracle, uh, catching all the fish. Yep. Yep. And this time, Peter, rather than runs away, he <laughs> dives into the water. I love that, right. Jesus. Yeah, and that, <laughs> Beautiful ones. He's, he's, uh, he's, there's a beautiful, beautiful impulsivity there, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and so what does Jesus do? Jesus brings him back through the three denials by three affirmations of love. Yeah. 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 And I believe that's a healing process for all of us. You know, it's like we run from our shame, we then face it, we face our shame and guilt. We only 
are able to face it in the light of his mercy and grace, you know, which is what a good confession is. And then uh, even when we know he's forgiven us, there's a deeper place where we need to let go of and repair the areas of guilt and shame. You know, the penance that we talk about in the church of, of being able to transform that area of guilt and shame into, into love. Well, Bob, I want to thank you very much for being with me today, and um, <clears throat> I love what your work. I love your work, and uh, if you ever get up uh, back into Michigan, I know you were here a few years ago. Uh, I'd love to be able to get together with you face to face. I always enjoy you. Okay, yeah, thank you. Thanks, Bob. Dr. Bob Shooks, uh, real suffering, finding hope and healing in the trials of life. I'm Al Cresta. Father Benedict Groeschel. I don't think people should have negative fears of God, but I think you should get a lump in your throat. You should feel excited. Suppose I was going to take you and introduce you to the Pope or to the President of some country or something. You might get a little lump in your throat. Forget it. Every day, you, I, live and move and have our being in the presence of God. These are the class of feelings we should have. And we should have them to an intense degree if we really had the sight of Almighty God. These feelings are the feelings which we shall have if we realize His presence. And in proportion as we believe that He is present, we shall have them. And not to have them is not to realize, not to believe that God is present to us. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Can your messy house lead to anxiety? I'm Chuck Gatica, and this is Journey Strong. St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians states that God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. If you walk in the door at home and you are greeted by clutter, peace may be hard to find. A messy house can lead to cognitive overload. While we're trying to concentrate on one thing, clutter can distract. According to research, women may be more affected by this type of anxiety. Societal roles and expectations can enhance the stress. To be fair, other underlying mental health disorders can lead to more clutter. Depression, hoarding, and OCD, just to name a few. However, clutter can sometimes lead to more creativity. Bottom line, don't let a messy house define you as a good or bad person. Take baby steps to negotiate with those responsible for messes to make change or hire a cleaning person. Check out the Journey Strong tab for more on clutter at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net. Thank you for being with us over that first hour of Cresta in the Afternoon. You can go to AveMariaRadio.net and follow up on the conversations we had with uh, Bob Shooks, as well as Father Chase Hillenbrink. And we'll have uh, Father Chase's story, again, featured in that book, Apostolic Athletes. That's available in the online store, along with all of uh, Bob Shooks' books. In the next hour, we'll be discussing uh, other things, including scientist view of miracles and uh, Leonard DiLorenzo Lorenzo discussing a God who questions. Before we go there, I did want to discuss a little bit about 
about the situation in Israel, this ongoing attack that um, we'll be covering throughout this week. Bishop Barron's group, Word on Fire, shared a great little prayer. This is from Psalm 12. For the peace of Jerusalem, pray. May those who love you prosper. May peace be within your ramparts, prosperity within your towers. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I say, peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I pray for your good. Uh, there's an interview currently uh, posted at Catholic News Agency, which we'll also have posted at our website. Father Gabriel Romanelli, an Argentine priest of the Institute of the Incarnate Word, who serves as the pastor of Holy Family Parish in Gaza. It's the only Catholic church in Gaza. And he says uh, the situation continues to be very bad. He's never seen anything like this before. Um, all of our men and women religious in this part of the Holy Land in Palestine are okay, he said, although he acknowledged that the mission in Gaza is the one that is going through very difficult times. In the parish, we have taken in more than 80 Christians and other Muslim neighbors of our school have requested accommodation. There are hundreds of dead and thousands injured among the population. I recalling to say Pius XII, which John Paul II also repeated, the priest asked for prayers and for peace because, quote, nothing is lost with peace. Everything can be lost with war. Finally, he expressed his gratitude for the closeness and prayers, along with the hundreds of messages he receives every day. From here, I continue to pray and work hard for our Catholic mission in Gaza for the good of all. Again, that is Father Gabriel Romanelli in an interview with Catholic News Agency, which we'll have posted for you. He's the pastor of the only Catholic church in Gaza. We are continuing to pray for peace. It's this horrible situation that is unveiling, and we'll have more to say about it later on in this week. More to come on Hour 2 of Crest in the Afternoon. We'll be right back. From the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon, everybody. Happy Tuesday. Welcome to this second hour of Cresta in the Afternoon. Al's got a little bit of a cold today. He will be back tomorrow, Lord willing. But we are looking back on some other conversations that we wanted to uh, share with you once again. Before we go there, however, wanted to uh, give congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family. A Blaze Radio in Duluth, Georgia, is celebrating their eighth year with EWTN. Congratulations to Ken and Patricia Chivers and the team at WNRE 98.1 FM from here at Ave Maria Radio and all of your friends at EWTN. In this hour, we'll be looking at some of the bigger questions that we face in life. And that's actually the, the topic of this first segment is simply a God who questions. And it does bring to mind a, a blog post Monsignor Charles Pope wrote a couple of years ago. He went through the Gospels and found all the times Jesus asks a question and just put them all in a list of about one to a hundred. We'll have that included in the Cresta Guest Archives. And today we're actually talking about a book written by Leonard DiLorenzo from Notre Dame that's simply called A God Who Questions. Because all throughout scriptures, we see these questions from the Lord. Where are you? Do you want to be healed? Whom do you seek? And of course, the one that might be the most important question ever asked, who do you say that I am? 
Uh, Leonard DiLorenzo is joining us to examine the questions Jesus poses to us and how they reveal the hidden secrets of our own hearts. And uh, he, of course, is uh, the author of this book, A God Who Questions. He teaches theology at the University of Notre Dame, also works within the McGrath Institute for Church Life at Notre Dame, and is the author of other books, including Witness, Learning to Tell the Stories of Grace that Illume Our Lives, and Work of Love, A Theological Reconstruction of the Communion of Saints. Uh, later on in this hour, we'll be looking at another question, and it's actually a question that was asked to our guest. Our guest is Ian Hutchinson, who is professor of nuclear science and engineering at MIT. And uh, Professor Hutchinson is also very outspoken about his faith. And so it was only a matter of time before some of his colleagues asked him, how can you be a scientist and believe in all this uh, gobbledygook, all this nonsense, all this fantasy religious stuff that we can't empirically verify the way that we can empirically verify the things that we study in the laboratory? Well, that question led him to write the book, Can a Scientist Believe in Miracles? And he joins us later in this hour. That's all coming up after this news break. Thanks, Brian. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Tuesday, October 10th. It's the Feast of St. Daniel Camboni. Today's news is brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes at CharityMobile.com. The U.S. is sending military support to Israel in its war with Hamas. The United States has surged ammunition and interceptors for Iron Dome. And the president spoke with Prime Minister Netanyahu just a little while ago to talk about additional capabilities that Israel will need. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says American planes are expected to land in Israel in the days ahead. The administration is also calling on Congress to advance legislation for more defense assistance for Israel. Families of Americans missing in Israel are asking the U.S. government to act. The mother of a missing American provided details on the last known whereabouts of her son and others who were at a music festival when Hamas attacked. They were put on a pickup truck and driven away by Hamas. And then the police told us one thing they knew is that the last known signal, cell signal from his phone was on the border with Gaza. At least 14 Americans have been killed in the fighting, while 20 others remain missing. House Republicans appear divided on a new speaker. Lawmakers held what was described as an emotional two-hour meeting Monday night over the party's leadership situation after Kevin McCarthy was ousted last week. The two candidates who have stepped up to fill that role are Ohio Republican Jim Jordan and House Majority Leader Steve Scalise of Louisiana. And Oklahoma is one step closer to hosting the first religious public charter school in the country. The Oklahoma Statewide Virtual Charter School Board voted 3-2 to two yesterday to approve a contract with St. Isidore of Seville Catholic Virtual School. The school's application was approved in June, but its planned 2024 opening could be held up by several lawsuits. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. When we look at the life of Jesus in the ministry of Jesus, one thing that we see, but which doesn't get nearly as much attention as I think it deserves, we see him asking questions. Um, we all know the most famous question, he says, who do men say that I am? But that's only one of many questions that he asks uh, those around him, his disciples and others. With me right now to talk about a God who questions is Leonard DiLorenzo. Leonard joins us once again. He is the uh, a teacher of theology at Notre Dame, and he also is associated with the McGrath Institute for Church Life there. He's author of Witness, Learning to Tell the Stories of Grace that Illumine Our Lives, on Work of Love, a Theological Reconstruction of the Communion of Saints, and most recently, 
a God who questions. Leonard, good to have you back here. Thanks. Al, it's a pleasure to be with you. Talk to me about the origins of this particular book. Well, this book really began for me as um, not writing a book, actually. I was um, <laughs> doing a little spiritual reflection myself, one Lent, and then I continued it in Advent. I thought I'd want to attend to Scripture, and one of the things that I thought of doing was paying attention to the questions that Jesus asked in the Gospels. And so for several days each week, I took one of those questions, and I just read it. I read it in its context. I wanted to write a little bit about it for myself. And what I found in the end is I was making something like what I call a scriptural pilgrimage. I yeah. was moving in and through these questions, really discovering myself in being addressed in new ways. Um, and I was having to, I think, confront my own, I don't know, presumptions that I was bringing into it, my own um, willingness to hear what was really being said. Yeah. After a while, I put those reflections together, and I thought, well, let's publish it and see if others might find some value in it. Yeah. No, it's great. The, I, I, let me, I mean, the, the questions here, um, you, you know, we all have the very famous question, uh, who do uh, men say that I am? But you also have a question yeah. here, have you anything here to eat? <laughs> right. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so, I, some of these questions, I, they did exactly what you're, what we're doing right now. You read this question, you're like, why Why did that make its way into the gospel, right? <laughs> right, um, right. And, my, you know, a lot of times my first response, sort of gut response, is to say, well, th this must not be that important, right? And so this is just filler, but nothing in Scripture is filler. Right. And right. especially none of the words of Jesus are filler. So that particular question, have you anything here to eat, comes at the end of Luke's gospel, um, and as I sat with that, I started thinking about this one fish that he ate yeah. that day. Yeah. And as far as I know, this is the only episode we have of Jesus eating after the resurrection. Yes. And so here you have his glorified body fully revealed, eating that fish. And I started to think about that fish. Yeah. You know, this one fish who swam in the seas of the ocean, or in the sea, just like every other fish. Um and I thought, wow, how blessed is that fish to be eaten by Jesus in the resurrection? <laughs> be incorporated so into his glorified body. Yeah, it was to kind of tease out the joke of it, um, though being surprised by that was part of uh, really reflecting on what was going on there, of him eating, yes. and that fish being joined to his body. Yes, and what th th that is theologically quite significant. Why don't you elaborate a bit more? I think it is quite significant, because we've said from the very beginning of the Church, the Church Fathers would say, whatever is not assumed is not saved. Or to put that the other way, whatever is assumed is saved. So in other words, whatever Jesus holds on to, whatever he takes on in the Incarnation, that is the site of salvation. That's what he's saving. And so when we look on Easter morning, what all those witnesses to the Resurrection saw, they had to be shocked into seeing that, actually, this is the whole man. This is the body and blood, the flesh, the humanity that the Word of God t took on that has now been risen from the grave. And so that fish, that one fish that he ate, is part of this good creation that is being taken up into heaven at the right hand of the Father to be saved. So that fish is actually a way, I think, of, of considering ourselves, our own uh, fleshiness, our own material matter, our own createdness, is, is precisely what the Lord seeks to lift up. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Uh, 
let's let's take uh, let's take another one of these questions. Sure. Um, this one this one uh, is it takes place. It's a very dramatic moment. Jesus asks, "Who is my mother?" Uh, uh-huh. Take that up for us. I will. So, who is my mother? Um, this comes, at least as I'm quoting it here, from the Gospel of Matthew. It's repeated again in the Gospel of Luke. And it's this episode where Jesus is inside a household surrounded by lots and lots of people, and somebody comes to him and says, uh, hey, your mother and your brethren are outside wanting to see you. And he responds by saying, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? My mother and my brethren are those who do who, who uh, hear the Word of God and act on it. That's yes. the way it comes out in Luke's Gospel. Right. Right. So on the one hand, it sounds like that's a little bit of a dismissal of his mother, right? right. Like your mother's outside, and he says, well, who is my mother? My mother's the one who hears the Word of God and acts on it. But especially, we can, we can detect this in Matthew, and then maybe even especially in Luke. Really, this is a point of emphasis about who Mary is. Yes. She is his mother in terms of clearly carrying him, giving him life, caring for him. But she's also his mother in terms of the one who is the first and perfect disciple. She is always the one who attends to the Word of God and translates that listening into her action. So in teasing out that question a little bit, it was I think it was trying to move from this first response of seeing something like almost a dismissal of his mother to seeing it as actually... Uh, like the echo of an emphasis on his mother to draw her attention even more deeply to Mary. Yes, I think uh, this is uh, clearly uh, this is one of those uh, questions which uh, the surface meaning of it uh, as a as a question of dismissal, uh, as you uh, uh-huh. meditate on it, ponder it. Uh, it turns out to be just the opposite. It's an affirmation. Exactly. Yeah, that his mother exactly. is kind of the ideal disciple. Uh, who, more than anyone, heard the Word of God and kept it, pondered it in her heart, and it brought right. forth the Word of God in a very literal way. So, And that listening cost her, right? It, there yes. was sacrifice involved, and the pain of love was made evident in her, that her heart was battered, it was pierced. Um, and to actually accept this son that she received and to accept him fully also meant standing with him at the cross and receiving another child in his place in a way. It's her sacrifice yeah. to let him go into his mission and to take who he gives her. Yeah. Let's take one that has caused a, a lot of uh, consternation for apologists sure. and really for just regular readers. Jesus um, is uh, approached uh, and asked, a good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That seems, you know, it's kind of, not doesn't seem like an especially um, difficult uh, social setting. I mean, this is people you would think would ask Jesus this kind of question all the time, but Jesus jumps on on this question, and he says, why do you call me good? I mean, that's, that's yeah. kind of an oblique answer. Uh, good it teacher, is. what must I do to inherit eternal life? <laughs> well, why do you call me good? <laughs> no one's good but yeah. God alone. And then he goes on to recite the commandments. What's going on there? Uh-huh. You know, this is something that comes up over and over again, precisely what you just pointed out. Like, somebody comes to Jesus to ask him a question or to initiate a conversation or something comes up, and Jesus responds a lot of times with a question that seems like 
it's kind of off topic or it's running on another plane like right. this one here. Jesus, just answer the question. Like, what must I do to, to inherit eternal life? He says, well, why do you call me good? Like, what an obnoxious person, it seems, right? Like, can't we just have this conversation? But what I, I think what we're presented with here in this episode with the rich young man is that he has an idea already of kind of what's inbounds and what's out of bounds. He has an agenda that he's not bringing forward. Right, right. I mean, we might think of him as a shrewd, investment professional, right? Like, he wants to know, what do I invest in to get back That's right. the maximum profit, eternal life? And so Jesus goes not onto the terms that he sets, this rich young man with his question, but he goes right to the heart of the matter. He's really asking this guy, what are you really looking for? What are you hiding? And so he asks him, why do you call me good? What I really think he's drawing out is this guy has already in mind an idea of what goodness is, of what the possibilities are, of what kind of thing Jesus could give him. And what this man needs to learn is he needs to be really made vulnerable before Jesus if he wants to receive the great gift. Then, of course, you know, as we follow this, Jesus does recite the commandments, but he doesn't recite all of them right. in response to this man. That's true. He, re- he recites the ones that mostly have to do with love of neighbor. He does not recite the ones that belong to the first tablet, which have more to do with love of God. That's right. That's yeah. a very interesting thing to notice. Yep. But it's not that he, it, he neglects the ones having to do with love of God. It's when he tells him to sell what you have and give to the boar, and then come follow me, and you will have treasure in heaven. That actually, if you follow this from the wisdom of the Old Testament, the one who exercises charity for the poor is fulfilling all of the commandments, because they're actually placing their trust in God. So when we sit with this, we see that Jesus has given him the fullness of the law, but he's asking him, really, to put his heart into it, which is precisely what this rich young man is unwilling to do. Mm. There's this passage uh, here where um, Jesus recites those commandments dealing with uh, mm-hmm. attitudes toward humanity, you shall not kill, not commit adultery, not steal, not bear false witness, not defraud. And this fellow actually replies, I've done all these things from my youth. Right. <laughs> it's like, yeah. whoa! And yeah. at that point, I would think uh, Jesus would have put, put him down, but he doesn't. Mm. It says, Jesus looking at him loved him. There's a tenderness mm. there, and then he delivers in a sense, the coup de grace. You're lacking in one thing. Go sell what you have. But Jesus loves him, even even as this fellow asserts his uh, that he's done these things from his youth. Is there anything we should take away from that? Well, I just find that stunning. And I, you know, I just yesterday I was uh, doing a little bit little bit of work and reflection on these looks of Jesus in the gospel. I don't think there's a book there, but I was, uh, <laughs> Jesus looks upon Peter after he denies him the third yeah, time, and it's yeah. just the look of Jesus that, that goes to his heart. But here's another one of these looks. He looks on him with compassion, and there's probably more, much more that can be said about this, but one thing at least is only in, in love can you really tell somebody what they really need to hear, and to tell them in the right way. Yeah, This man Jesus is telling this man, here is the truly necessary thing, and he's telling him as an act of love, let me show you really where eternal life is. I'm going to tell you. Just about taking him by the hand, uh, hoping to lead him. Leonard, thank you so much. Um, We'll talk again. Uh, We expect to be, by the way, in South Bend sometime, uh, and uh, love to get together with you if we can. 
Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. Letters to Lorenzo, A God Who Questions. It's a wonderful book. We'll have it available for you, of course, in the bookstore. Dr. Ray Garendi. When I've had enough. I ask parents, when do you decide to discipline? One of the most common answers is, when I've had enough. If discipline is designed to teach, then we need to discipline before we've had enough. We need to discipline because the behavior's wrong, not because emotionally it's pushed us to our edge. Besides, when you get to when you've had enough, you're much more likely to yell and scream and say things that you have to go to confession for. So, the suggestion is, discipline out of principle, not emotion. Principle means because it needs discipline, and I'm going to do it when I'm calm. Emotion means I'm going to be moved to do it just because I'm mad. Did you know you have divine glory living within you? If you are a baptized Christian, you are host to a gentle guest, says the Catholic Catechism. This guest inspires, guides, corrects, and strengthens us to live our life in Christ. That gentle friend is the Spirit of Christ, the third person of the Blessed Trinity, the Holy Spirit. He is active in us, transforming us spiritually if we are willing, so that we may live as children of the light. There are two ways to live. The first way, the way of Christ, leads to life. The opposite way leads to death, an eternity without God. Choose life, then. Choose Christ, a life of challenge and joy. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. I went to Las Vegas years and years ago for one of these cable shows. And, and I was uh, shocked to see all these old ladies in their 70s and 80s getting off that plane, running for a slot machine. You don't have a chance to win. They're all fixed. I know, my uncle used to have slot machines. <laughs> EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, 
they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Dr. Ian Hutchinson, is Professor of Nuclear Science and Engineering at MIT. He's a plasma physicist, and uh, he uh, works on exploring the confinement of plasma hotter than the sun's center, uh, aimed at producing practical energy from nuclear fusion reactions, uh, which is the energy source of the stars. Uh, he is the author of an outstanding book, which I came across when I was writing Dangerous to the Faith, called Monopolizing Knowledge, uh, which I found a great help in helping me understand the scientism uh, from a man who's deeply embedded in the world of science and yet is also uh, has an active faith in Jesus Christ. He is most recently the author of Can a Scientist Believe in Miracles? And uh, Dr. Hutchinson, it's a great pleasure and honor to have you with me today. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, when we think of MIT, we don't normally think of uh, people who bear witness to Jesus Christ. Why is there such a conflict in today's world between those who are seen as pioneers in the field of the sciences and technology and the world of personal faith? Well, actually, there isn't such a strong conflict as is commonly perceived, but the, but the perception of that conflict is uh, a legacy of a campaign that was... Um, championing secularism or the secularization of the academy that actually took place in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. um, and we've inherited that um, in our academic spheres. And the presumption that many people have is that science and um, religion, the Christian faith particularly, um, are, are and always have been at war. But the interesting thing is that, that that outlook has been debunked by historians of science yep. fairly thoroughly over the last 50 years. And so it's not so surprising uh, to find people um, at a place like MIT, sort of high temple of science and technology <laughs> yes. in, in America, and maybe even in the galaxy, um, uh, to find people who are actually serious Christians like myself. So, uh, among your colleagues, then, you're not regarded as uh, eccentric because of your faith in Christ? I don't think so. Um, I mean, I think there are plenty of people who don't share my uh, Christian views and mm -hmm. who are secularists or even atheists um, on the faculty, but there are also plenty of people on the faculty at MIT who are uh, serious Christian believers, and so... I think we have to find ourselves a, a meeting place, sure. and, in the, and we also, and this is what my book is about, have to understand more deeply the relationship between science and religion, and find a place where, the, where we understand how those have an, interacted over history and do interact today. Uh, your earlier book, Monopolizing Knowledge, I love the title of it, it who, who determines that scientific method is the sole means of arriving at knowledge how how do we why is that considered 
the soul means? Well, considering the scientific approach to be the sole means of obtaining knowledge is what is commonly referred to as scientism. Mm -hmm. And um, my view is that no one really determines that, but it has become a very common assumption or background view within the academy. And that comes about for lots of reasons, one of which is this uh, secularization of the academy that I just uh, mm-hmm. mentioned. But another is, of course, the enormous success of science. Right. So um, people in, in a whole variety of disciplines have seen the tremendous success that science has experienced in the modern age of the, over the last three or four hundred years. And... Um, and that leads people to believe that, well, maybe the scientific method is, is really the only way of finding real knowledge. It's certainly a very reliable way, and it's a way that I've pursued through, throughout my, my career with some degree of success. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think it's uh, a folly to think that science is all the knowledge there is, and I think it's very obvious when you think deeply about it that that can't possibly be true, because there are lots of things we know in our lives and in the academy and in, in, and in, in important disciplines that aren't discovered by the methods of science. And, and the example I usually give of an area which is predominantly not scientific knowledge, but is knowledge is history sure you know what we um, historians have very serious knowledge about what happened in the past about the way that societies developed and individual events in those in the in the course of history and that's important knowledge you ignore history at your peril but it's not found out by using the methods of science the methods of science predominantly i'm here referring to the idea of the importance of having reproducible observations or um experiments and and having uh, unambiguous clarity in the way that those um the results of those observations or experiments are are uh, expressed and history doesn't possess either reproducibility you can't do an experiment to prove you know that uh, caesar crossed the rubicon right. um you but but nevertheless um we do know with high degree of certainty many of the facts of history some of them are not known with such great um, certainty as we are common um, commonly uh, searching for in science but nevertheless history is real knowledge and so scientism is just a ghastly mistake do when it comes to questions of uh, what Christians might call the moral law or natural law uh, human nature itself Bigger questions. Uh, is science helpful? Well, science can certainly describe the the normal workings of the universe. And so if you are interested in the ways in which uh, our world behaves in reproducible and uh, predictable uh, manner, uh, science is tremendously helpful. But but in the end, if you are if you are thinking in terms of the big questions of life, why am I here? What is the meaning of life? Is there a God? Where will I go when I die? Those questions that have exercised the human spirit um, for millennia, um, science isn't terribly helpful in addressing those. Yeah, um, because those are questions which for which, in a certain sense, science is deliberately um, 
incompetent to answer. Their, their questions about meaning, their questions about personality and purpose, which are things which science deliberately puts aside when it focuses on those very clearly reproducible aspects of the world. Uh, is there, you mentioned earlier, two things about science that strike me. One of them is its extraordinary success and uh, all the benefits that accrue from science and technology in our daily lives. Yes. The second thing is the degree of certainty that scientific knowledge is, uh, seems to offer. Uh, when it comes to those bigger questions, uh, it seems the bigger the question, the less certainty people have about them, or at least there's the greater the degree of disagreement. Uh, can you speak to that disparity? Well, I think that the second way that you phrased it is, is a good one, which is that there's a greater degree of yeah. disagreement about some of these big questions. And, uh, of course, that's true, but um, quest the big questions or the, or the questions, of religious questions, for example, does God exist or, you know, uh, is there a loving God and those questions like that, those are certainly questions to which the answer is less clearly uh, investigable by any kind of reproducible methods. But that's in part because, in a certain sense, they're the hard questions. Mm -hmm. And I would be willing to say, probably to the chagrin of, my, of many of my fellow scientists, that actually scientists are studying, in a certain sense, the easy questions, <laughs> the questions that we, we're deliberately choosing to, to ask and answer questions about which we can have very clearly, uh, easily agreed answers. But there are many other questions in life which are just as important, maybe more important, and, and to which the answers aren't really so clear. So, but religion isn't the only, only area in which that's true. I mean, there are areas like politics um, in which the arguments go on forever. Right. People don't come to agreement, and yet politics is extremely important. And so we can't just focus on, if you like, the easy questions, the, the quest questions where um, we can sort out the answers by the very um, finely tuned methods of science. Uh, since the rise of the new atheism after 9-11, we see a, re, uh, a reassertion of the, uh, the old village atheist idea that somehow uh, if you have faith, that means you don't have knowledge. If you have knowledge, it means you don't need faith. Uh, what's the relationship between faith and critical thinking? Well, um, I'd be happy to talk about that. I wanted to just say a couple of words about my new book, um, Can a Scientist Believe in Miracles? The, the title of the book might be a little misleading unless one has the entire title, which is, which, which is followed up by an MIT professor answers questions on God and science. And my book is about all the kinds of questions that I've been asked that give, while giving talks in, mostly on university campuses, about the relationship between science and faith. And the question, you know, you've asked um, about faith is one of the questions that comes up in my book. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a very important part of the relationship between uh, science and religion, because those who take the secular view often have a very naive and 
um, simplistic view of faith. It's really, they offer a caricature of faith, um, which I think um, needs to be thought more deeply about, because faith itself um, contains at least three threads of meaning. One is belief in propositions, mm-hmm. sometimes belief in propositions that aren't provable. Um, second, the, the second thread of meaning is a, a matter of trust or confidence in a thing or a person. And the third thread of meaning is to do with loyalty and um, acting in faith towards um, some ideals or some uh, or some group, or some person. And actually, in, the, in Christianity, the emphasis is on the second two meanings of faith, mm-hmm. uh, trust and loyalty, much more than it is on belief in propositions, right. whether provable or not. Dr. Hutchinson, hold it there. We'll take a break, come back, and pick it up at this question of what is faith, uh, its relationship, belief in propositions, confidence or trust in a person or a thing, loyalty to some person or ideal. We'll expand on that. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Pro-life across America, the billboard people. It's not over. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. I'm Marianne Kuharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Our messages feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy assistance. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. Please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Crest on the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective.
The following is a medical moment. Hi, I'm Bobby Schindler, brother of Terry Schiavo. Can you imagine receiving a phone call from your child's roommate while they are away at college telling you that your son or daughter had an accident and has been admitted to the emergency room, but they don't know anything more? In a panic, you call around the hospitals asking about your child. However, instead of being helped, you are told they cannot share information with you because of HIPAA privacy. You are terrified, worried sick for your child. How do you prevent this situation from happening to you? A healthcare durable power of attorney. This legal document will appoint you as their healthcare agent, granting you the rights to all information in an emergency and to make medical decisions on their behalf. As soon as you're able to, you need your child to sign these documents in order to prevent the nightmarish situation we've just discussed. They must be signed, stored, and easy to access so that you can have them at your fingertips the moment disaster strikes. This medical moment brought to you by MyLifeAngels.com. Never miss an episode of Cresta in the afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. My guest is Dr. Ian Hutchinson. He's a plasma physicist and professor of nuclear science and engineering at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. He is the author most recently of Can a Scientist Believe in Miracles? An MIT professor answers questions on God and science. Before the break, we were talking about faith and critical thinking. The word faith, uh, Dr. Hutchinson uh, points out and writes in the book that uh, the word faith has several different but related meanings. Uh, One, number one, belief in propositions. Number two, confidence or trust in a person or thing. Number three, loyalty to some person or ideal. And you were saying before the break, uh, Dr. Hutchinson, that the last two are most significant for the nature of Christian faith. Go ahead. That's true. Um, but the but the first is the one that the skeptics um, generally focus on, and they portray faith as a kind of blind faith, a belief in things that, as Mark Twain says it, um, believing something you know ain't true is uh, his schoolboy's definition of faith. Um, and but that I don't think uh, really reflects. Um, historic Christianity, and certainly not what faith means within uh, the Christian Church. Um, faith um, is, is much more those um, second trust and loyalty matters. And when it comes to belief in propositions, the propositions, if you like, of the Christian faith are not things we believe you know, in spite of the evidence, right. or in contrast to the evidence, there are things we believe because we have evidence uh, for their truth. And that evidence may well not be scientific, by and large it couldn't be scientific, because um, religious faith, and, and the Christian faith in particular, is much more about persons and about personalities and relationships than it is about the natural world. And so naturally that evidence isn't scientific so the when we when we talk about faith we are as christians we're talking fundamentally about this uh reliance upon the person of christ yes yeah. certainly that personal relationship with god um is through christ is um a crucial part of uh the christian faith um, the first 
great commandment is to love God, to have a relationship of love with God. And also, it's about relationships with people, because the second great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. And so, again, um, when we're talking about the things on which Christianity focuses, we are inevitably talking about some of these things which are beyond what science can tackle by its um, rigorous methods, and because we're naturally involved in personalities, in purpose, in intention, uh, and the higher level uh, descriptions of um, the world and of people. Do scientists exercise a certain type of faith uh, in, in you know, the kind of work? They have, to, they have to presuppose certain things about the nature Absolutely. of the universe. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, everyone in, in every discipline has a certain sense, um, a set of approaches uh, to the world, which are based on some fundamental commitments. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in science, we have this underlying uh, belief and, and uh, intention of um, describing the, the world in, in terms of uh, its reproducible behavior. We find the world to be ama- enormously consistent as well as being powerful and, and to some degree comprehensible. Um, those, the fact that we find it that way is not obvious from the get-go, mm-hmm. and in fact it was partly um, a, a, a pre-existing belief in the coherence of um, the creation um, that led to the growth of modern science. But certainly that um, coherence to the world is a core belief of scientists, and, um, it, and it's what underlies what we carry, uh, the, the kinds of investigations we carry out. And even in the end, the content of science becomes a, um, a set of uh, propositions in which we're, we find ourselves utterly convinced. And, um, and, and, and so if you think about some you know, set of equations in physics, whether it's you know, Einstein's relativity or whether it's Maxwell's uh, equations of electromagnetism, um, these are well-established understandings of the world in which, we, in which we scientists have enormous confidence, and that, that confidence could well be considered to be faith. We have trust in these uh, equations. We think they're going to be reliable, and we act in our uh, lives and in our designs and inventions and ideas in ways that um, we think are going to be consistent with the truth of those propositions. And so I think it's not the case that um, activities in the science contrast so much with um, uh, understandings and, and, and thinking and action in religion mm-hmm. that, they, that they have nothing in common. It's quite, it's quite the contrary. There, there is, in a certain sense, faith um, taking place in both areas of thought. Uh, does the possibility of miracles uh, upset the confidence that a scientist should have in the uniformity of the natural world. Do miracles actually work against that confidence, that presupposition of stability? Yeah, that's that's a very important question, and um, it's one which which has come up frequently over the centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 
I think that, you know, we, the, given the time we have, let me just answer superficially, <laughs> sure. superficially is, the, is that the answer is there is a certain tension, okay, in that science shows the um, world to be largely reproducible, and, and so our science is successful because the world is reproducible. But what science doesn't show is that the, the world is always reproducible in exactly the way that science says. And um, so the question fundamentally becomes, are the laws of science such that they are known to be inviolable, or are they um, more, more, more realistically our best uh, description of the ways in which the world is reproducible? And I take the second view, um, that uh, the laws of nature... Um, that we're discovering in science, profound and powerful though they are, are actually the descriptions of, of the way in which God sustains the world, uh, as the scriptures say, mm -hmm. um, by his word of power in this consistent uh, way that he has of uh, upholding his creation. But God is not constrained by the laws of nature, even though those are the ways that he normally mm -hmm. sustains the world. And right. so if God has purposes that go beyond um, the steadfastness of his um, normal uh, sustainment of the world, he is at liberty, if you wish, um, to act differently, and um, therefore miracles are not ruled out in, in my mind. Um, by uh, the, the uh, great discoveries of science. And by the way, um, you know, you shouldn't just take my word for it that a scientist can believe in miracles. You should look at history and, and observe that uh, many of the greatest scientists of history, uh, Maxwell himself, Faraday, Newton, um, Galileo, uh, Boyle, and, and on and on, were convinced Christians. They were people who took the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a miracle, um, to be um, a fact. Right. And therefore, over history, it, one can observe that great scientists have indeed believed in miracles, and they can continue to do so today. Uh, you're aware of this, I'm aware of it, listeners are aware of it, that there are lots of competing claims about miracles. People use the word very loosely. But let me ask you about miraculous claims in other faith traditions, in other religions. How should the uh, Christian uh, regard those claims? Well, I think it's not at all unreasonable for a Christian to approach any miracle claim with a degree of skepticism. <laughs> right. Because miracles must be rare, because if they weren't rare, <laughs> science wouldn't work. Exactly. Um, so, so it's perfectly sensible for to approach all miracle claims with a pretty high degree of skepticism. As I cite in my book, um, even the Roman Catholic Church at Lourdes has sort of endorsed only 1% of right. the miracle claims That's right. of healings at that shrine. Um, so um, the quick answer is you should approach them with a degree of skepticism. Sometimes people put forward those miracle claims from other religions as some kind of disproof um, of 
uh, Christian miracle claims. Uh, but I don't think that's how it works. And in my book, I explain a bit, in a bit more technical detail how the probabilities actually work. But whether or not um, miracles are true, in, or that there are such things as, as true miracles in other religions, really has minimal um, uh, influence on whether I think one could reasonably uh, accept that the possibility that there are miracles um, if one's a Christian. Mm-hmm. So I don't think actually God is forbidden for uh, from working miracles in the context of other faiths. Um, but even if he were, I don't think that that influences the argument. This, this argument, by the way, comes up because it's one of uh, the points that David Hume made in his um, very famous uh, philosophical uh, analysis of miracles, whereby he discounts them. Um, and this question of other religions comes up at that point. We've only got about uh, 90 seconds left. How should, what is the relationship between Scripture and science <laughs> in 90 seconds? <laughs> okay, well, uh, I think the Bible has lots of different types of literature. It has prophecy, it has uh, history, it has uh, religious ceremony, it has letters, it has biography and so on and so forth. But the one type of literature that I can guarantee you is not in the Bible is scientific literature, (laughs) Uh, because science didn't exist in the days when the Bible um, was uh, was written in the the way we think of it today. And so I think it's a a, a terrible mistake if Christians or atheists, for that matter, um, approach the Bible as if it ought to give them a scientific description of the world. And so, um, of course, there are ways in which science gives a different story of the beginning of the universe and of the Earth than does, for example, Genesis. But I don't think those two stories are in conflict when interpreted sensibly. Dr. Hutchinson, thank you so much. I greatly appreciate your work and uh, this new book, Can Scientists Believe in Miracles? Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Dr. Ian Hutchinson, can a scientist believe in miracles? Outstanding. Do you have a bad temper? I'm Chuck Gatica, and this is Journey Strong. From the Old to the New Testament, Scripture speaks about us controlling our anger. Proverbs states that those of us with a hasty temper will make mistakes. We also know anger issues can lead to health issues. We can cause a fight, lose a friend, or witness to others in ways that are unproductive. Mayo Clinic suggests some ways to manage our anger and dial down the temperature of our anger. Practice deep breathing, maybe a personal timeout. Think before speaking. Calm down before discussing a concern. This will lead to less stress. Identify solutions and present them calmly. Try using humor or laugh at yourself. Humor can be a great diffuser. Most of all, if you have persistent anger issues at work or at home, don't be afraid to seek help. For more details on managing anger, look for the Journey Strong tab at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net. And now... The EWTN Family Prayer with Father Joseph. Family, a prayer that we pray together is a powerful prayer. So please pray together with me, our EWTN Family Prayer. Today we pray for the caregivers of the sick. O Most Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we adore you. You have first loved us. And through your Son, you have taught us the excellence of self-giving love. 
Give to those who are caregivers of a sick parent or child, brother or sister, the assistance of your holy angels. Lessen their burdens and give them great joy in practicing a work of mercy. And since charity is never forgotten by you, reveal to them their heavenly reward. Amen. Thank you for joining us over the last two hours. Go to AveMariaRadio.net to follow up on everything we talked about today. We'll have the books available for you in the online store. And also we'll continue to have news coverage of uh, both what's been happening in Israel as well as the uh, the Synod on Synodality. Matthew Bunsen will be joining us again later this week with uh, more updates on that. Wanted to once again offer this prayer for Israel. This is uh, from Psalm 122. For the peace of Jerusalem pray. May those who love you prosper. May peace be within your ramparts, prosperity within your towers. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I say, peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord, our God, I pray for your good. Uh, a few final notes. We need to offer one more congratulations going out to our friends in uh, Georgia. This is one other member of the WTN radio family celebrating an anniversary. This, this uh, Thanks to the support of all the people listening right now, this family has gotten so big that just about every week we're celebrating another anniversary. And this is uh, Blaze Radio in Duluth, Georgia, celebrating eight years with EWTN. Congratulations to Ken and Patricia Chivers and everybody else at WNRE 98.1 from all of us at EWTN. Quick reminder, if you're in the uh, northern Ohio or southeast Michigan area, you're invited to join Al Cresta for a gala dinner this Saturday evening uh, in benefit of the Guadalupe workers. It's at Spirit of Sanctus Academy in Ann Arbor, and um, he'll be uh, talking about the ongoing work of the pro-life movement. You can learn more about that at AveMariaRadio.net. We have it linked in our slider. And also there, we have information about something that's happening in Michigan this week, but will be uh, continuing throughout the country over the next several months. The first-class relic of St. Jude has been uh, lent to the U.S. for the special tour. Father Carlos Martins joined us yesterday to talk about it. And again, you can learn when it's coming to your area in the slider at AveMariaRadio.net. Have a great evening, and God bless. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.